title of the message this morning is Peter's Great Confession. And uh, you kind of know what's coming. This is not new to you. But I do want to recognize that this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. When, when Jesus sits his disciples down and has this conversation about who he is, it serves as a pivotal point where he kind of ratchets up the discipling and he makes it, begins to make it unmistakably clear uh, what it is going to mean to be one of his disciples. And so this is a crucial point in his ministry. Now, it appears in Luke as if it occurred right after the feeding of the 5,000 uh, and, and right in that area. But actually, Luke is not particularly trying to locate this chronologically for us. Uh, you notice how it begins in verse 18. And it happened... It's kind of like once upon a time. It's, it, it's not a story, but it has that kind of a beginning. Uh, here's another situation, and it happened. But um, Matthew and Mark give us uh, more of a precise location chronologically, and, and they indicate to us that this is that turning point where Jesus begins to speak openly about his mission to go to Jerusalem and to be crucified and die on a cross for uh, their sins, for our sins. That, that this is his purpose. And so um, it's important to recognize that, that this is a pivotal point in his ministry. Now, Luke is also very careful to tell us something about Jesus before he gets into the narrative of the question. I've tried to get into Luke's mind to uh, understand kind of what he's thinking because Luke is writing retrospectively. He is coming, you know, to, he's older in his life. He has lived through the period of the book of Acts, 25 years, and he is writing kind of retrospectively about all the research and study he did to find out about the life of Christ and his ministry, and then to write for us the, the story of the growing church in, in Acts. So Luke and Acts form a two-volume uh, history of the, of the ministry of Christ in the early church by Luke. And he's at the end of this period reviewing it. And I suspect that Luke, in traveling with Paul and other members of that missionary group, learned a great deal about prayer. I am quite confident that traveling with Paul, everything they did, they did by prayer. They, did, they didn't just strike out on their own. And that one memorable time when they were traveling through uh, uh, kind of like um, southern Europe uh, and they were trying to figure out where to go next, and uh, Luke tells us in the story that they were trying to go over here and trying to go over there. And nothing seemed right. And they were praying about where to go because the Holy Spirit wasn't permitting them. And then Paul has this vision in the night. And in this vision, he sees a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. And so 
Paul shared his vision, and they all concluded that this was where God wanted them to go. So Luke is very tuned in to the correlation between praying for direction, praying about opportunities, praying about events, and seeing the result. And so he's careful in his gospel to bring to our attention the, the sequence that Jesus made these major kinds of uh, whatever, I'm trying to think of a word and it's not coming, uh, these major changes, these major uh, ideas, that he does that after a season of prayer. You notice that he told us that he prayed all night, and then he called 12 of his disciples and singled them out. And you notice in verse 18 it says, And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he questioned them. Now, immediately you may say, if you're like me, you may say, Okay, how was he praying alone and the disciples were with him? I mean, how does that work? And um, I think the obvious answer is, you know, I can be over here praying alone, and uh, you guys can be back there in the corner. Uh, we can be together and not be together, you know what I mean? And so Jesus is obviously off by himself praying, but the disciples are in the vicinity nearby. And Luke tells us that after this uh, season of prayer, uh, he kind of emerges from that and he comes out, and I think it's kind of a low-key conversation. You know, you know, he comes up to his disciples and um uh, he just begins a conversation, you know, just sits down, casual, let's have a chat. Who do the crowds say that I am? What are you hearing about me? And he wants to get them to report, but also to start thinking, you know, who, who are uh, these people saying that I am? And the disciples, that's not a hard one to answer because they've heard the things that are said. Same kind of questions Herod was posing. And the crowds say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Can you imagine that? And uh, some say that you're Elijah. And, um, well, some think you're one of the prophets that came back out of the grave and has reappeared in Israel. And so as they're having this discussion, Jesus very pointedly looks at him, and, and the tense is in the emphatic, and it's plural, and he looks right at them and he says, but who do you say that I am? Now they can't borrow an answer. <laughs> They've already expounded on the crowd's idea. And Jesus is drilling down to their own hearts. You twelve, who do you say that I am? He wants them to think about what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've experienced, and, and begin to uh, put things together. I don't know how long... Uh, they may have sat there in silence. But eventually Peter spoke up. I, I got kind of amused. Most commentators say Peter was the spokesman of the group. I don't think he was the spokesman of the group. I just think he was always the one that spoke first. 
I think he was that guy that couldn't stand silence. And that whatever went you know, between his ears had to come out his mouth. He was just that kind of a person. He's always talking. You know, if ever there's something, you know, even on the Mount of Transfiguration, we're going to get that in a little bit, you know. Even up there, you know, he kind of wakes up out of a sleep and he sees Moses and Elijah and he's looking at this whole thing and he says, Wow, this is really good. Why don't we build some tents? What? You know, he just, he's always quick. But in this case, something comes out of his mouth that I'm convinced startled him. Matthew tells us the whole phrase. Mark tells us the short phrase. Luke is kind of in the middle. They're all saying the same thing, but Matthew gives us the fullest statement. He says, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I think when that came out of his mouth, Peter went, kind of, and the disciples, because that coming from the lips of a Jew was an incredibly profound and powerful statement. In fact, it was so filled with meaning and so insightful and so un Jewish-like in certain respects in the middle, that Jesus says to him, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. Not even your flesh and blood. You didn't think this up. But my Father in heaven has given you this insight. And the scriptures tell us from that time he began to, to change the way he Uh, taught them as disciples, preparing them for a life of commitment. I want to take that apart a little bit and kind of analyze that statement. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. First of all, what does it mean to be recognized as the Christ? Now, Luke has before led us into the knowledge that he is the Messiah. But remember, he's telling the story after the fact with, with knowledge, <clears throat> and the people at the time necessarily did not recognize that. And so um, the disciples have not really settled in on this idea. They know he's great. They know he's a prophet. When, when, he, when, they called, when he called them to, to be disciples, um, some of them wondered, could this, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one we're looking for? Uh, let's follow him and find out. So there's a little bit of ambiguity at the beginning. But at this point, there's this declarative statement. You are the Messiah. For a Jew to say that was incredible. Because all through the Old Testament period, God had been promising someone who would be the Redeemer of Israel, the King of Israel, the, the, who would usher in an age of blessing and bounty and plenty and a marvelous time, someone who would overthrow all of their enemies, someone who would heal all of their diseases, someone who would do all of, everything they needed. This one would be the anointed one of God that that was the one they were so longing for. From Genesis, when God promised Adam and Eve, one will come 
from you that will crush the head of Satan to Abraham and the promise that you will give birth from your offspring to to one who will be a blessing to all the nations. Uh, Moving forward to uh, the prophets, to Moses, and one who would rise who would be greater than Moses. And Isaiah, as he portrays the coming of, of this glorious king and ushering in this reign of peace and righteousness. And all through this whole era, the Jews have longed for this one. And he would be special. And one of their expectations is that he would overthrow the governments of the peoples and carry the government upon his shoulders, that he would be king of kings and lord of lords. Now Peter says, you are the one. You are the Messiah that we have been waiting for. That is a powerful statement from a Jewish person. But then he says something that in some senses is even more profound. Matthew records that he said, you are the son of the living God. And they understood begotten or sonship perhaps a little differently than we do. I don't know that we think about, um, well, maybe some do. The idea that a son or a daughter is of the essence of the parents. They're, they're family. They're of the same line. Jewish heritage is very important. I'm the lineage of. And the idea that the one begotten is of the essence and likeness of the parents, not only uh, in families, but in the human race. That to be the son of a person means you are like them in your very nature. doesn't mean you're identical in personality, but you're like them in your nature. And so the concept of begotten, although it is obviously deeply tied with birth, also is uh, deeply tied to the, the, the unity of the parent and, and the sameness of the, can I say species? <laughs> we know that horses don't have dogs, donkey, donkeys don't have giraffes, and uh, you know fish don't give birth to birds. We know these things. Everything reproduces after its kind, and human beings reproduce after their kind. And you see the, the likeness in the children coming out in the parent. This analogy with respect to the father and the son in the Godhead is meant to convey that Jesus Christ is of the same essence as God the Father. He is equal in essence or likeness to God the Father. Now I ask you, who can be equal to God? No one but God. John makes this very clear in his gospel in the first chapter that Jesus is the only begotten of God, the one who comes from the bosom of the Father. 
that he has come from the heart of God and is of the same essence as the Father. However, John makes it very clear that Jesus did not have a beginning. He was not born at some point in time as children are. He was begotten of the heart of the Father, the essence, as a part of the triune one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he has his likeness and his nature. That's the essence of sonship here. You are the son of the living God, which is equivalent of saying, you yourself are God, come from the heart of the Father. And then he makes it clear, as Peter gives his declaration, that you are the the son of the living God. You are the Messiah of God. In other words, you have come from the Father. He has sent you. You are here by His design. And you are His gift to us. Now, I will grant you that the disciples didn't get all of this. Peter, as Jesus pointed out, didn't think it up on his own. It just kind of blurted out of his mouth by inspiration. And they really didn't understand the depth of the meaning of it. In fact, they didn't fully understand this statement until after the resurrection. Because it it was too profound, too deep. They were still trying to get a handle on this person. But at least they had some new insight. And Jesus did not deny in any sense Peter's declaration. We know that because rather than saying, oh, Peter, you you don't have that quite right. (laughs) What he said was, see to it that you don't tell anyone about this. In other words, this is true, but it's not ready to be revealed to the world yet. So don't tell anyone. Why would Jesus say that? Well, part of the reason is the crowds were already going bonkers and they were trying to seek him for a variety of reasons which were less than noble. And boy, if he was identified as the Messiah, you know, it'd be like, oh, we can all go after him and we don't have to work anymore, we don't have to do anything, and he's going to take care of us. And, and the other part is, the rulers of that region and the Roman government would have been extremely threatened by someone whose name was King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so they were not, you know, he was not anxious that the timetable of the Father should be short-circuited by an advance notice. So he says, don't, don't tell anybody about this, but you're, you're right on the mark. I've had people challenge me about, does it say anywhere in the New Testament, is there anywhere where Jesus declares, I am God Almighty? And... I will have to say that you will not find that phrase in the New Testament. But what you will find, and particularly if you have the mind of a Jewish person who understands, and the Pharisees clearly understood, um, Jesus again and again and again affirms his deity. And he affirms it here in this passage when Peter says, You are the Christ the Son of the living God, is an affirmation of his deity. It's at this juncture 
that Jesus begins to talk about the cost of discipleship. Have you heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt? I started to write that it was a proverb, but I figured some of you would be looking in your concordances to find it. It's not in the Bible. It's just a a saying among ourselves that familiarity breeds contempt. What does that mean? Well, let's say that you and I were invited uh, to uh, visit Washington and to walk the halls of Congress and to see the the executive uh, mansion and to uh, visit the Oval Office. You know, I, I don't care who you are or what you think now. If you got that invitation and you were asked to come and, and, and just walk through uh, the dining halls where all the special uh, china and silver uh, have been collected over the history of our nation and see the, the paintings of the founders of the country and, and the greats that we have celebrated. You know, there's something awesome about that. And, and I don't care, you know, you may say, oh, that wouldn't impress me. I've been there. It's impressive. It's just impressive. Even if you've got your head on straight and your priorities right, there's just something about the beautiful decor and the immensity and the the majesty that it's intended to convey that, in fact, does convey that impression. And it would be a little bit like, wow, this is amazing. However, if you work at the White House and you go there every day, and you go to the kitchen to cook, or you're a butler, or you're an executive officer, or whatever. But that's where you go every day. People get used to the limousines, and they get used to the carpets, and they get used to the uh, opulence and, and the immensity of things. And it's just like, this is where I work, you know? You go to Burger King, I go to the White House. This is, this is just my job. You know, it's just that kind of thinking. Familiarity breeds contempt. We tend to degrade the things that we experience most often. There's a risk of that with Jesus. In our time, we love to talk about Jesus, our friend. He's our bud, you know. He hangs with us. He's cool. He answers our prayers. We can always chat with him. He loves us. I mean, who could have a better buddy than Jesus? That's that's the kind of vernacular that that we tend to think of Jesus in, in our culture, our church culture. And... It's not that there isn't some truth to that. Jesus said, I have called you my friends. A servant doesn't know what his master's going to do, but I've revealed everything to you. I've told you what's on my heart because you're my friends. I've taken you into my confidence. I I love you. I am your elder brother. Um, My father set his affection upon you and I have come to redeem you. And, and you can come to me any time, for any reason. I'm always available to you. I'm the one who wants to hear your prayers. I care deeply about everything in your life. That's who he is. 
but he is also the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one who made the universe and who holds it together by the word of his power. You know, if scientists ever get beyond the the atoms and the quarks and all the other little things that are going on in there, one day they're going to come to the realization that the light and the energy and the power is God that holds it all together. He is the one who sustains you and me. He is the one who died, but not only died, was buried, but not only was buried, is risen again, and is now ascended and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is Lord God Almighty. And we need to have a clear understanding in our minds when we speak to Him as our friend and our brother, that He is also our King and our Lord and our God. And to have an attitude of worship and respect and adoration. We've lost the fear of God. And I don't mean the fear in the sense of trembling in terror because we should not be afraid of God's judgment as believers. We have been delivered through His blood on the cross. But there is a certain awesome respect for the holiness of the One who dwells in unapproachable light. And we need to have that recognition in ourselves simultaneously with our intimacy and our closeness. And I I debated whether to include the discussion about discipleship this week, and I realized it was too much to put all together. But I want you to recognize that Jesus ties the cost of discipleship right to this confession. And what I'm convinced of is that we need to know who He is if we're going to follow Him at the cost of our lives. We need to be convinced that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. I'll probably talk more about it in a couple of weeks, but... This was a sad week in the Christian and Missionary Alliance as we lost six of our national workers in Africa who were going to a village to help teach them how to avoid Ebola and how to, how to take care, just normal hygiene and whatever. And the villages are suspicious and they don't even believe in Ebola and they don't even understand viruses and, and bacteria and they don't think anything about that and and uh, they think the government is out to get them. And so when these Christian and Missionary Alliance national workers went into a village out of love to help them prevent a horrible disease, they were murdered because the village didn't understand their purpose. And they were some very key people in some of our medical work and The cost of discipleship is high. Here in America, all we have to deal with is a little bit of ridicule and some insults. But around the world, people are dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. They're giving their lives as disciples and followers of Christ. And friends, if the time comes when we're called upon to make that sacrifice... 
we had better be very clear in our minds who it is we're serving. This is not religion. He's not just a good buddy. He is Almighty God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Son of the Living God, the Promised One, my Redeemer, my Lord, and my God. And we must have that clear in our minds. Father, I pray this morning as we contemplate Peter's declaration by inspiration that we would also consider in our own hearts and minds who you are, Lord Jesus. That we would hold you and our understanding of your person and nature in balance with truth. That while you have invited us with tender arms to come and be held and nurtured and encouraged by you and to love us and to meet our needs, that you are God Almighty. And we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your gates with praise and we worship you because you are the Son of the living God. In Jesus' name, amen.